The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. Today I am here with Joan Nold. And Joan, do you want to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about who you are and your various roles and positions? Uh, yeah, so my name is Joan Nold. I grew up in South Dakota. We now live out here in Utah. And I'm a wife and a mom and a doctor and a dog trainer of sorts and, and a founder and president of a nonprofit that trains service dogs for veterans. So when you said you're a doctor, will you elaborate on that a little bit? I am a neonatologist and what that is is um, an intensive care doctor for babies. So I take care of babies who are born prematurely or who are born sick. And how did you get into all of this? Like where did you grow up? How did all of how did all of this kind of start to happen in your head? That's a long story. So, um, so I grew up in Central South Dakota, and my dad was in state law enforcement for his primary job, and then my parents were very community minded, and so he was a volunteer city fireman, and he was the volunteer county fire chief, and he was the civil defense director for our county. And back when I was growing up, we were worried about the Soviet Union and nuclear bombs and and all those things. And so the civil defense director actually played a role in keeping the community safe and making sure you did bomb drills and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing they did was, um, in our area, he would do tornado watches. We didn't have radar that told you a tornado was coming. He went out on the hill and he watched for tornadoes. Um, and then he would notify the community to take cover if there was a tornado coming. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she had done nurses training, and she worked with him um, in the civil defense area, even though it was volunteer work, and you know, kind of was one of those neighborhood moms and raised eight kids. And so I was number six of, of eight. There were six of us in 10 years, and then we had a couple of stragglers 10 years later. And my oldest brother bought the ambulance service when I was 11. And so everybody in my family um, became an emergency medical technician. He and my oldest sister and my older brother ultimately were all paramedics. But I went to class to become an EMT with my mom and my dad and and my brother who was a year and a half older than me and, and two of my sisters. And so I became an EMT when I was 12. I actually took a week off from sixth grade to take the final course. <laughs> so kind of weird. We grew up kind of weird. Oh, that's awesome. Though. Yeah, just very odd. Um, but it kind of goes back to, so my dad, another part of his responsibility as the civil defense director was to drag the river for people when they drown and search the water and stuff. And the first time I rode with a dead body, was in the civil defense truck. Um, They had retrieved the body of a boy that was the age of my sister. He was like 14. And he lived just a couple blocks from us, and he had drowned in the Missouri River. 
and we had been out at the site while they were dragging the river for his body, and when they found the body, they put him in a body bag, and he was in the back of the civil defense truck, and Dad just had me jump in the back of the civil defense truck, and I rode to town with the body. And so that's just weird, weird ways that we grew up. And like I said, my parents were very, very community-minded, civic-minded, and so Dad was always bringing strangers home. So if he... If he saw somebody that needed help, he brought them home, and they stayed with us. And um, we had a gentleman once when I was in the second grade who wrecked his camping trailer and his pickup, and he was in his 60s, and it was going to be two weeks before he could get a replacement. So he stayed in my room for two weeks, and I thought it was great because I got to sleep on a cot in the living room. And his name was Shorty Decker, and and Shorty was our friend until he died 20 years later. or one, one summer day, it was just pouring rain, and we'd all pile into the old station wagon and drive, take drives. And we were driving around, and there was this hitchhiker out in the pouring rain. And we are all like, Dad, Dad, we have to pick him up. And so, of course, we picked him up, took him home with us. And he was uh, supposed to sleep in the garage, but that didn't happen. He slept downstairs with my brothers. And he was from Boston. He was just a young man that was seeing the country hitchhiking in the 70s from Boston. And we got... Christmas cards from him from the next 30 years. And so that's just how I grew up. People just came home with my dad. Um, and then when my brother bought the ambulance service, we would all rush out to the scene of something if he needed help. So if it was a bad car crash or if it was a cardiac arrest or, or anything like that, we would rush out to help him. And there were only two paid people on his squad, himself and, and an employee he had until my other brother got old enough to join him. So we all just did it as volunteers. Um, And it was not uncommon that there were people from car crashes that had to wait for family members to come help them. And so we would take them home. (laughs) So that's just kind of how you grew up, you know, from the time you were a little kid. I remember where I was 15 or 16, and there's a young lady from Iowa who was my age. And her dad had had a massive heart attack in the car while they were driving in South Dakota, and she happened to be driving, fortunately. And my brother went and picked up her dad, and they tried to revive him, and obviously he he died. And so there she is sitting all alone at the hospital in South Dakota by herself because she had to wait for family to come from Iowa. So my sister came home and got me to go down and sit with her and talk to her and spend time with her while she waited for family to come from Iowa because her dad was dead. Well, how many 15- or 16-year-olds do that? But that was what we did. That's just how you grew up. And so, obviously then, by the time I graduated high school, I was a big horseman, and and I rodeoed all the time and stuff. And I thought about being a doctor, and then I thought, that's really a long time, eight years of school. I don't want to do that. So I went in, well, I got married a year out of high school, and I went to Colorado State and did the equine science program, horse science. And dabbled in horses and rode and rodeoed and, and had a good time, and... And um, then I went on and I did a master's degree in physiology because I love physiology. And I did that in Kansas. And that's where we had our first son, Zach. But by then I realized that I was also still very much an adrenaline junkie. And I didn't want my hobby to be my profession. And even though I'd been accepted to do a PhD in equine reproductive physiology at Colorado State, I decided I wanted to go into medicine. And so I actually worked for three years as a 4-H agent in South Dakota while we had our second son and while I took physics and organic chemistry (laughs) 
so that I could get into medical school. And then I went back to medical school when I was 28. And we had Zach and Jake and um, for medical school then. <clears throat> did residency in Iowa and fellowship in Minnesota. And I knew I had to do something that was intense, you know, high intensity. So it was either going to be emergency medicine, pediatric ICU, or neonatology. And I loved the neonatology and the fact that my patients couldn't talk back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever I said went. And they, did, and they didn't hurt themselves. I mean, it's like adult medicine, we're always doing bad things to ourselves, eating the wrong stuff, smoking, drinking, crashing, whatever. And these were, you know, innocent little babies that just needed someone to take good care of them and, and get them through the most trying times of their lives. And it was intensive care. And so it was balls to the walls a lot of the time and, and craziness, which I loved. And then times when it was calm and quiet, most of them did well and go home and you get the pl pleasure of doing that and being a part of that. So that's how I ended up as a doctor. Long story. <laughs> did, you, did you always know that you wanted to get into that field? Did you feel like getting into equine medicine was not as much your calling or did you feel like equine medicine was more of your passion like how does, how does I always together? seemed to well for one thing I had several things I just loved love love doing so picking and choosing was hard so I bounced around and tried to do them all mm -hmm. and at 100 miles an hour I always went 100 miles an hour and I still do and um I always seemed to deny what I ultimately was going to do. So, nope, medicine, eight years, that's too long. Nope, I'm going to do this instead because I love this. But I gravitated back to it. And, and that's how I was. When it was something I knew I was ultimately going to do, I always, it seemed like I always tried to deny it and try to do something first. And maybe that was how I proved to myself it was the right thing. I don't know. And then I would always follow my gut. If it didn't feel right, I didn't do it. And I went back to what did feel right. So I guess maybe it was my, my way of self-checking my path. That well, sounds like a good way to self-check. It just takes longer. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. I mean, it always seems like people have a very linear way of getting to the place they want to go, but then... Mine was not. The more people I talk to, the more I find out that nobody's... No, or rarely are people's paths linear. And, and the thing is, you know, yeah, I could have been a doctor... Five years earlier, blah, 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 not gone to Colorado and then Kansas and then back to South Dakota. And, but I'd have missed so many experiences and so many people along the way. It, it wouldn't have been worth it. I mean, the, the nonlinear path is best. The life experiences are too valuable. So, yeah, as crazy as it was, it was a good way to go. So when I got done with fellowship, which was in Minnesota, we moved back to South Dakota. Um, the boys were in late grade school and early middle school. And so we moved back there, and I took a job that was closer to family and stuff and um, let them finish school there. So I worked in South Dakota for six years. So what had you decide to start having kids? Well, you're one of eight kids. You either love it or you hate it. And Roger's one of seven. And so, yeah, I mean, it just loved being from a big family and, and all the things that go with family and by the time we were, I was in grad school when I had the first, when we had Zach, and so we'd been married five years, and just ready to add the, the chaos of a child. <laughs> and now, having kids and your career in medicine has really shaped your, your perspective, mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me, on life. Would you talk a little bit about that? 
My <coughs> dad in particularly was not real caught up in possessions, material things. It was all about people. And for whatever reason, because people can really be pieces of crap. <laughs> so yeah, you see life and death and pain and suffering and, and the positives and the negatives of people. And so even when I was in residency and fellowship, it was like, you, you get a little overprotective, I have to admit. But you have to be aware not to get the God syndrome. And the boys would at times say to me, Mommy, I wish you didn't have to be a doctor, but I know you do. <laughs> because I would maybe say, no, I really don't think you should do that because it's dangerous. Um, but they knew I was passionate about it. And to think that at the age of four they knew how passionate I was about what I did was really nice. Because I hoped that they would find the same passion for something in their lives in the future. And so the medicine in itself molded me to the point where I, I material things aren't point, important to me. Money really isn't important to me. It's a, it's a way to get from point A to point B and to do things that I want to do. And most of what I want to do ends up helping other people, which again is kind of funny because sometimes I say, people suck, I hate people. <laughs> and yet my whole life is revolving around helping people because I think innately most people are good. It's a matter of them finding the good in themselves sometimes. Mm. And if you're genuine and you help open that door, um, sometimes a lot of people are a lot better person because of it. Hopefully. And it certainly doesn't make you perfect at all. But my passion is just, you know, I, I have to be busy. I have to be going, going, going. I love the intensity of intensive care type medicine and the satisfaction of seeing the results when you're done. The satisfaction of knowing you're making a difference. You know, you are actually truly impacting the world far beyond your years. And when you lose people, when you lose a baby, it's probably the time where the job I do is the most important because you're caring for that family at the worst and most tragic time that they could possibly experience in their lives and if you don't do it gently and if you don't do it well, all they would do is walk away with horrible memories. Whereas if you can do it gently and if you can do it well and if you can give them positive memories and experiences of that child at that time, even though it's a very short period of time, they can move on into life with positive memories and with joy and with happiness and with love in their heart instead of just tragedy. So that's probably even more important than when I save a baby which is kind of a crazy way to think of it. So, and then you transcend that to your own family and your own kids and how you look at them and, and the life you try to share with them and you try to make it positive, not negative. And you try to have them look at the good in things and not the bad in things. Recognize it so they don't get taken advantage of or whatever, but not dwell on it. And when my boys were younger, more like in high school probably, and you hit that age and stage where all you see is how rotten people are to each other or how this person cheats or how that person got to somewhere they shouldn't have been and they didn't deserve it. And it's frustrating for them. And all I would ever tell them is, all you can do is change your little corner of the world. And if you change your little corner of the world, if enough of us do that, we'll make a difference in the world as a whole. And they used to blow me off to some extent, which mm -hmm. is normal. But now that they're in their 20s, they embrace that. And they're both trying to change their little corner of the world, bit by bit. And they believe they can, and they can, because they want to. So I guess that's kind of how all that shaped. And then how did, 
how did that lead into Labs for Liberty? So with Labs for Liberty, I grew up, you know, with horses and, and with dogs, but not really training dogs. I trained horses. And our older son, Zach, joined the Army Reserve Psychological Operations and when he was in college. And I have to say, even though my family was in law enforcement, I had a very dear friend killed in the line of duty. Um, my brothers and brothers-in-law were police officers or highway patrolmen. And so you grew up knowing that at any time you might get that phone call. I wasn't all that pumped about Zach joining the Army. He did, and I fully supported it. And I've always been a big reader, too. And so I started reading books that were coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan-related experiences. And the first one I read was The Heart and the Fist by Eric Greitens. Eric was a Navy SEAL who was also a humanitarian. Amazing man, everyone should read that book, who is now governor of Missouri. And that was the first book Zach gave me. And then I went on to Lone Survivor. And then I went on to Service. And then I went on to Outlaw Platoon. So I started gobbling up these books that were being written by these guys who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And recognizing the PTSD and the enormous number of people with significant PTSD and how it was changing their lives, plus just their physical injuries. And when Zach joined, his unit was actually deployed to Afghanistan. And the guy who would ultimately be his first sergeant, Anthony Norris, who was about 28 when he was deployed the second time, um, I met that following fall. And during his deployment, he was blown up in Afghanistan. So he was about five feet from an IED that was very similar to what the Boston bombers used. And he said it was buried too deeply because when they detonated it, it was intended to you know, tear off their legs. And instead, it just filled the right side of his body with chunks of metal and ball bearings and all kinds of horrible things and gave him you know, a significant brain injury. And so he went back, they took him back, and they plucked as much metal out of him as they could. And they gave him about a week off, and then he finished nine more months of deployment after a major head injury. And so Anthony was living with PTSD. Um, he was in the process of getting out of the reserves. And he was living with horrible memory problems and headaches and physical pain. And, and yet was just an amazing, amazing young man. And um, we had talked about service dogs when I met him because we were out hunting pheasants. And uh, it was very apparent that a service dog would make an enormous difference to him. And that a Labrador Retriever service dog would be the best thing because he could hunt with it. Well, the mindset was that service dogs were service dogs and they weren't to be anything else. You didn't use them for anything else. They weren't your friends. They weren't your pets. They weren't your swimming buddies or your hunting buddies. They were service dogs, kind of like seeing eye dogs through the blind. And that's what they needed to be. Well, we didn't believe that. We were like, no. I mean, we have this wonderful source for these amazing labs who are incredible dogs and wonderful hunters. And if we trained them, then the person could have not only an awesome service dog, but if they were a hunter, they could have an awesome hunting dog or outdoor companion. And so the very first thing we actually did, and it was when we met Anthony that we were doing this, is we had paid for a certificate from our friend who has these dogs, and we were raffling it to raise money to give to Lone Survivor Foundation. And the man who won it lived in Chicago and gave the certificate back and said, do something with it. So we went ahead and we got the puppy, and we started training the puppy up. And when she was five months old, we took her to a Lone Survivor gala, and they auctioned her off to raise more money for Lone Survivor Foundation. And the woman who bought her gave her back to me because she knew I had just learned how to train service dogs. And she said, train her for someone. 
And so obviously the person I wanted to train her for was Anthony. And so I started training Penny for Anthony, but Anthony is a giver. And he was already doing charitable things for other veterans, taking them on hunts with another organization and all this stuff. And I knew he wouldn't accept her if I didn't do it right. And so I called him one day, and he calls me mama number two, and I call him belligerent son number three. <laughs> but anyway, I call him and I, I said, okay, this is a yes or no question. He's like, okay. And I said, um, first of all, I want to know, would a service dog improve your quality of life? And he's like, in his southern drawl, yes, ma'am, it would. And I said, okay. Secondly, with that answer, I said, I have one and I'm going to give it to you. And you cannot give it away. Oh, he said, but there's other people who need it more than... I said, no. I said, you don't have a choice. You just told me it would improve your quality of life. And I'm going to give you a service dog and you can't give her away. And he kind of choked up on the other end of the phone and he agreed. And so it was a month and a half later that I met up with him. And I really didn't know that much of what I was doing yet. Um, and we didn't have a, a program per se, but I met up with Anthony and I introduced him and Penny and and sent them off in the world together. And um, it's been magic ever since. There were some bumps along the way because we had to figure it all out. But Penny has saved his lives more, more times than I can count. And um, I sent them home together on July 5th of 2014. And, you know, there's all of the fireworks going on and everything. And Anthony had been blown up on July 23rd of 2010. And so he was getting to that spot where he was starting to drink too much and was pulling away from his family. And it would happen every year. And he went home and he laid down on the couch and Penny just draped herself across him and just laid there all night long and just snuggled him. And he was like, wow. And... Now, Anthony trains dogs with us, and he's vice president of our foundation, and, and Penny's a miracle, and, and it just took off from there because it was like, how can you do something like that and know that you're capable of doing something like that and not keep doing it? And so from there, I applied for nonprofit status for the foundation so that we could um, take charitable funds and... You know, we're 100% volunteer, and every dime we bring in, besides the money of our own that we put into it, goes into matching dogs with veterans. So that's how we got there. Wow. Yeah, kind of weird. <laughs> weird isn't the word I'd use, but <clears throat> yeah. How do you make all of it happen? Because you have two incredibly demanding full-time jobs. And you have a family, although your sons don't live at home. Um, you still have two sons. You have a husband. You have, you know, a beautiful property that you allow veterans to come to to pair with their dogs and to train both the dog and the veteran to mm -hmm. be a unit. How do you manage all of it? You know, it's because of everybody else that helps us. And for us, it's 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 a mission. You know, it's... To us, it was like a God-given mission. They, God reached out and said, you can do this. You know, you can help me with this. And, and that's kind of even going back to my medicine. I remember when I was really young and we lost a 12-year-old girl. Um, I was working with my brother. I was like 15. And he reminded me that we are given a gift and it only extends so far. And um, we use that gift in his name and then once it is beyond our ability, we have to give it up and just accept it. And so that's why I accept that I can't save every baby. 
And so when this came along, to me it was a gift. I have this gift I've been given, and this gift is to train these dogs and work with these people, these veterans, to give them a chance at a new life. And so it's a mission for us. And it took me a little while to get Roger on board because he just, until, until he actually worked with some veterans through another organization that our friends have, and he saw the difference it made in their lives, and he realized he could impact those lives too, and that he had a gift of giving to these people. And so we pushed forward, and we surround ourselves with other people who have the same passion. And by being a 100% volunteer organization and nobody gets paid a dime means the only reason you do this is because you have a passion for the dog, the veteran, or both, and the end result. And that end result is not that they get to be who they were because no one can go to war and come back unchanged, but that they can do what we call find a new normal. So the dog is the bridge from being a warrior to being a civilian again and finding a new normal life that is healthy and happy. And, and so, yeah, I, I'm able to do it because of all the people who are willing to give of their time and their heart and their passion freely to make it happen, or else it wouldn't. You do it with a lot of grace. And I know it is definitely a, um, you know, it takes a community to raise a child and Mm -hmm. it takes a community to raise these dogs. And, you know, I know you've screwed up in ways because just because you're human and (laughs) you still do it incredibly flawlessly. Well, thank you. And, and again, it just comes back to knowing it's not about you. Mm -mm. It's about the dogs and it's about that relationship. Can you talk a little bit about the the ways that it's helped these veterans? Yeah, I mean, in ways that we hadn't even imagined. Um, when we started out with Anthony, we knew Penny would help him psychologically, you know, and help him find things because he loses things all the time and help with depression. And then it, the obvious things that you can teach them to do, like um, picking things up for someone, the physical things, or turning on the light switch. And, and yeah, we knew all those things. We didn't realize the impact it was going to have on their families. So we started to see that with Anthony. His mom and I became very close. And her just thanking me for one thing because he didn't kill himself because of Penny. And people say, well, why will they stay alive for a dog and not their family? Well, it's not that they're staying alive for their dog. They're staying alive because their dog comforts them in ways that we can't because it's an unconditional love. And it's, they sense when they're in trouble and they sense when they're struggling and they give them that support at those times and they do it without having to have any reason or any response or any talking about it. And so they aren't staying alive for the dog. They're staying alive because they want to stay alive for their mom or their dad or their husband or whatever. But the dog is making it possible for them to get through the pain that makes them want to kill themselves. And so I saw that with Marty. And then we had gifted a couple more dogs, um, one to our son's boss for primarily physical stuff, and then another to a gentleman who was in his late 50s who had lost his voice. And his dog became his voice, among other things, and just helped immensely with his depression. But then it was when I paired a dog named Willis with Matt Matlock. And Matt was, when he contacted me, he was near the end. And um, he'd had some really horrible experiences as a special operations person uh, with the Air Force. And 
I trained Willis, and the interesting thing about Willis is we, we try to get to know, or I do, the veterans before I ever pick the puppy out for them because then I kind of know the personality of the puppy that they need. And with Matt, he needed a puppy that was just really loving because later his mom and his grandma described to me that he came back for more a monster in that he had no feeling. He had no, no love in him anymore. He couldn't love anymore. And I didn't realize that, but I knew he needed a really loving dog. And so I picked, well, I had my breeder pick this very certain puppy and we matched Matt with him. And it's the only time we've had a dog who met their veteran at the airport and literally flung itself at him, rolled over on his back and begged to be rubbed. And they were immediately instantaneous connection. This, this guy and this dog, they were just meant to be. And when Matt got home with that dog, after several months, his mom and his grandma started contacting me about how, how they were starting to get him back and how he was starting to show affection again. And so then it was a year that Willis had been with Matt and he invited us out. He was doing a presentation for his grandmother's SPCA about service dogs. So we went and Matt is very much, very much a part of our family. And um, they explained to us and Matt explained to us that he, hadn't, he was no longer capable of love when he came back from Afghanistan. He couldn't love anyone or anything. And he said he had a girlfriend at the time, and they were kind of in a parallel plane. And he thought that was fine. You know, we do fun things together, blah, blah, blah. But I'll never love anyone enough to marry them. I'll never love anything enough to want to have kids. I'm just not capable of that. I don't have that ability anymore. And he fell in love with Willis. And it's going to make me cry. But anyway... <laughs> And Willis loves him so much, so unconditionally. And every time you would see Matt and Willis, Matt was kissing his dog, just kissing, kissing, kissing that dog. And his grandma would say, stop kissing that dog, and she would be laughing. Matt learned to love again through Willis. And his mom and his grandma pointed that out. He said, uh, his mom, Nancy, said, you know, I looked at him one day and I s said, Matt, do you realize what's happened? And as he's hugging this dog, and he's like, no. He said, she said, you're loving again. And he suddenly realized he had learned to love unconditionally. He could love Willis like nothing else. And he actually broke up with his girlfriend because he realized he could never love her that same way. She was a great friend, but that chemistry wasn't there. And he realized he wanted more. He could have more. He could hopefully someday find someone that he would genuinely love as much as he loved Willis. And about six months later, he met a young lady. Um, they, they talked for seven hours the first time they met. They just sat and talked for seven hours. And this relationship just started to bloom. And granted, it, it, you know, it had its bumps because he's still working through his issues. And he got a hold of me four, four months after they were dating. And he had sent me some pictures, and I said, I'm so glad to hear you're doing well. And he told me, he said, I'm going to marry this girl. He said, Joan, I'm going to marry this girl. And sure enough, it was a year and a half later, we were at their wedding. And she is, Jennifer is everything he ever needed. She draws a line in the stand, sand, and, you know, he, he, he has to be an upstanding man. But at the same time, she understands where he's been and that he maybe doesn't share everything about where he's been and just needs her to be there for him. 
And she thanks us for Willis. So grandma and mom and stepdad and all the relatives and now the wife thank us for Willis because Willis allowed Matt to love again. So the ripple effect of just helping Matt is that we've helped all of his family and now this wonderful wife he has had and now they're going to have a baby. And so it was like, holy crap, we never even imagined that. And then we... We'd seen also a young guy had come out. He had two little boys and a wife. And by the end of the seven days of being here, his wife said to us, Jeremy and I's marriage is better right now than it's ever been. And they went home together. And a guy who wouldn't even leave the house is now taking his kids to the park. And they're going to the zoo with the dog in tow. And two years after he got Eddie... He doesn't need to use Eddie as a service dog anymore because it's gotten him over the hump. He can go do stuff with the kids at the school program or now he's actually a lead um, a repair writer or whatever you call him in a car dealership. And Eddie gets to stay home because he doesn't need Eddie out there anymore because he's broken down the barriers of going from the horrors of war to being a civilian. And that's when we started to realize we're not just helping the veteran deal with their depression or their anxiety or their physical problems by helping them find a new healthy normal. This entire family dynamic and quality of life has changed. Wow, what an enormous responsibility. Something we never, never imagined in the beginning. Long story, but that's kind of what happened. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's, it's privilege. It's... It's just a, a ridiculous privilege to know that a simple skill you have of working with these dogs and then just the fact that you have the heart that you're willing to give of that can impact that many people. No wonder you've continued to do what you do. And, I mean, you, you're just a magnet to continue to draw more people and who have that same desire. Yeah, the people with the same heart, the same passion. You know, you commented that... Everybody you meet out here is just so neat. Well, that's because they have the same heart and the same passion, or they wouldn't be out here. Yeah. And once you've done it, and once you've seen the results of, of what you can do, it would be incredibly selfish not to do it. Mm -hmm. even, if, even if you only trained one dog a year, because maybe that's all you can do for whatever reason at that given point in time. But it would be incredibly selfish to know you have this gift and not to share it. Yeah. So you're stuck now. <laughs> I know. I'm, happy, I'm happily stuck. Oh, dear. Can you tell I love all these people? <laughs> They've touched me in amazing ways. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? And I would you have listened? Yeah. I thought about that. I would tell myself to slow down, and I wouldn't. When would you have told yourself that? Oh, gosh. Pretty much every step of the way. I would have told myself as a senior in high school to slow down and focus and just go to med school. But no, I wouldn't have wanted to do that in retrospect because I would have missed all those great experiences and all those neat people I met between graduating high school and going to medical school 10 years later. I would have told myself to slow down when I thought, well, I can do pediatrics and give my kids a normal life instead of still doing more training and going into fellowship. I tried it one year and I hated it. 
So I'd have told myself to slow down and I wouldn't have listened and I would have still done the fellowship. And I would have told myself to slow down when Roger told me to slow down and take a break after my first dog or two, which I didn't. And I actually probably got in too deep for a while and did have to slow down and back off a little bit for health and sanity. But I probably wouldn't if I told myself to do it. That's just how I am. So slow down, but I, I never will. Along those same lines of talking about the course that you've taken, did you ever have an original plan? Like, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and, and actually, that, that's so our son Jake, our younger son Jake, um, we got our nonprofit status December of 14, and it must have been January of 16. He took over as executive director. He was still in college. And he's like, Mom, what were you thinking a year ago? And he said, I wasn't. I was just training dogs. And I had no plan. I really, honest to God, had no plan, no structure, no nothing. I was going to find people who could benefit from the use of a well-trained service dog. And we were going to bring them into the fold as part of the family, because that's what we considered a family culture. And we were going to train this dog for him and send him off into life together. And by that time, I had about 18 dogs out there. And I didn't have a fundraising plan. I didn't have any structure. I was keeping tracks, track of things on paper and on a spreadsheet. And he's like, Mom, what were you thinking? I wasn't. And if it weren't for Jake taking on that role of executive director for a year, year and a half, I would still have no structure, which is a bad thing. And so he put structure to everything. He developed fundraising ideologies. He networked with people that I couldn't have even imagined getting to know or finding, and he put structure to the program, which gave it true sustainability, because I had no structure. <laughs> so that was kind of a, a deviation from an original plan or lack, lack, lack thereof. thereof. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Roger calls me ready, ready, fire, aim. I get an idea and I just do it. I don't necessarily plan. But that kind of comes from being in medicine or intensive care or emergency medicine because you don't know what's coming. You just have to be able to react. And so I am very good at just jumping in with both feet and by God, I'll make it work one way or the other. I really like that. <laughs> so what, what would you say is your low, was your lowest point? One of the boys was very, very ill their junior year of high school, physically ill, and um, was having some some GI issues. And I actually trusted a pediatric GI doctor I knew. And um, it went on for weeks and months. And I had some concerns and I would voice them and, and he would say, no, no, it's fine, it's just this, which was something much simpler. To the point where my son became desperately ill and, and could have died from what was going on. And thank God, by then, we did finally land in the hospital. We did get the right diagnosis. Um, and he did recover. But two reasons. It was a low point. Number one, I'm a doctor. I should have known better. But I always promised myself I would be the mother, not the doctor, when it came to my own kids. So I was, I, I was the mother, not the doctor, had I let myself be the doctor, I would have followed my instincts and I would have pushed harder even though I thought I was pushing pretty hard. And in my opinion, I made the mistake of trusting a colleague who 
who was supposed to be very good in his field. And then the other reason it was my lowest point is because as a mom, I didn't do my job. I didn't protect my son. That's still hard. How did you get through that? Like, how did you pick yourself up? I would get on the exercise bike at the gym and pretend the other doctor wasn't (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Um, Again, had to accept that I wasn't his doctor. It wasn't my fault. God only gives me so much. And, And him repeatedly telling me, Mom, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You couldn't control it. It's not your fault. And then I finally, I always wanted to bust the windows out of a vehicle, which is really a strange thing. But I did. It was like, oh, that would be, I just, especially after that, I so wanted to just take a baseball bat and just bash some glass. And uh, he and his dad were working on a Jeep, and the Jeep they used for parts was going to the salvation, (laughs) salvage yard. And so... They gave me protective glasses and gloves, and I took the bat, and I bashed the windows out of it. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and that was a year later, but that's finally when I got over trying to want to run the other doctor over on the bicycle. That's good. Well, I mean, so often people <laughs> just try to, like, shove it down, but to actually express it in that way uh-huh. is healthy and kind of awesome. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs>